Good morning. It's nice to see everybody here this morning. We're going to uh, work on with a koan this morning. And um, so I'll start by reading the case. Um, actually, the introduction. We'll work with the introduction as well today. This is Shoyuroku case 14. The introduction says, with the probing stick in his hands and wearing a grass cloak that renders him invisible, he sometimes covers cotton with iron and sometimes uses brocade to hide a large stone. To use hardness in determining softness is all well and good, but how is it when showing weakness when confronted with strength? See the main case. Kaku the attendant, asked Deshan, where have all the past Buddhas and patriarchs gone? Deshan said, what did you say? Kaku said, I commanded an exceedingly fine horse to spring forth, but only a lame tortoise appeared. Deshan was silent. The next day, when Deshan came forth from his bath, Kaku offered him tea. Deshan gave his shoulder a gentle pat. Kaku said, the old boss has noticed for the first time. Deshan was again silent. And that's the end of the case. And so this koan came to mind um, early this week after Sushin and having James Ford Roshi here for the week. For those who are here, um, we're lucky to meet him. And um, well, I'm just glad that you were able to. We, we, James and I had been meeting for a number of years now, mostly online. And what I've come to understand about him is, um, is that he's a very ripe fruit at this point in his life. Um, you know, there's an ease to him that is rare even in the Zen world. You know, this is what 50 years of Zen practice does to one. And so when you're in, you're in somebody's presence like that, you, you can't help but feel that. And, and so, you know, it's, it's nice to see because you, you hear about these teachers from the past in history, you, you hear about um, in, in our Zen anal analogs of teachers when they reach this stage of practice, but you don't often see it in, in the real world. And so I thought of this case, this case would be fitting because what we're, what we're encountering here in this dialogue, this encounter between Kaku and Deshan is Deshan at the end of his life, this very mature teacher. And for those who know the Japanese names better, this is Tokusan, um, and his Chinese name is Deshan. Deshan was, as a young man, 
was quite the opposite of what we encounter here in this koan. He was brash, he was overly self-confident. We first encounter him in one of the early koans in our training. He was a monk that was not a Zen practitioner. He was a scholarly kind of monk. He, he was an expert in the Diamond Sutra and um, was very proud of his understanding of, of this very important text in Zen. And he got word of Zen, uh, that it was a practice that claimed to uh, offer people direct insight into the Buddha's teaching. And that was very contrary to the practice in many forms of Buddhism, which is to work it out over lifetimes and lifetimes. And so he thought, how dare these Zen devils? Um, And he took it upon himself to pack his bags with his Diamond Sutra commentaries on his back and head down to teach these Zen devils a thing or two. And so we encounter him as he meets with this tea woman and who challenges him and and eventually he finds his way to Lungtan, the first Zen master that he encounters. And um, he and in that story, in that case, uh, we see his change that happens, his first insight. Um, and at the end of that case, he takes all of his books, his commentaries on the Diamond Sutra, and he sets them on fire, burning them. He say, says something to the effect of that all of the knowledge is like a drop in vast space, like a drop of water in vast space. But still, even, even with that insight, he's quite dramatic. <laughs> um, and, and in further koans, we see this kind of still very vibrant, but very dramatic kind of presentation in his encounters. One of, one of the encounters that we have in the record of uh, Deshan is reflective of his use of the stick. He was often, he was known for his use of the stick to get his students to awakening. And, um, and so the student came forward one day and made, um, well, before that, Deshan said, um, he said to the assembly, he said, if you speak of it, you miss it. And if you remain silent, you also miss it. And so one of his students came forward and bowed and Deshan immediately struck him. And the monk said, I haven't even said anything yet. Why did you hit me? And he said, why should I wait for you to open your mouth? <laughs> right. So he had this very fierce kind of quality to him as a teacher. And as, as the koans progress, as we see him mature, we encounter him in a later case where he is in his room and brings his eating bowls down to the dining room. Some of you will recall that he comes down to the dining room and um, the head cook, uh, who is a young monk at the time, 
sort of corrects his teacher and says, Master, the, the bells, the dinner bell has, or the lunch bell has not been rung yet. What are you doing here? And Deshan shuffles back to his room without saying anything. And so what kind of state of mind is he in at this point is one of the questions. Right? What, what frame of mind is Deshan in? And, and the koan goes on from there. It's, it's sort of a reflection on how, as a young person, how practice can be full of ideas and notions and what Zen is and what it's not. And as we mature in practice, those ideas begin to fall away and we meet things as they are. So I think, you know, as we encounter teachers like this, we, with Roshi being here last week, we see that practice has a way of softening us, you know, as we age. As it says in the introduction um, to this case, it says that sometimes, um, sometimes brocade hides a large stone, you know, this very soft, exterior, but inside is this unmovable, large, you could say, infinitely large stone. We also, it's not just over a lifetime that we, in, we begin to soften, but, you know, even within the few days that we spend in a retreat in a sashim, Many people in the session that we just finished reported this kind of feeling um, coming in, of course, full of hopes and expectations and ideas about what they wanted from the retreat. And of course, in the middle of session, how those come crashing down, <laughs> how we meet the reality of the moment and how it doesn't meet up with our ideas and expectations. Oftentimes in a lifetime, we encounter this in middle age, how we begin to shed some of those ideas about what we thought we would do with our life, how we thought it would go, what we want, and yet reality begins to show itself more and more fully to us. And then by the end of Sashin, how tender people can become as they do let go of all of those hopes. They accept as in really, in essence, what happens is practice has worked us over pretty, pretty much like Deshaun in a stick. And so, you know, in my time with James Roshi here, we see that result of practice. And we see how what's reflected is just this ordinariness in his character, nothing special. Let it, having let go of all his need to be special. As I said during the ceremony last Sunday that Yamada Kohen Roshi said that nothing distinguishes the enlightened person. This is a very advanced stage of, of practice. You know? No need for a, a look or to say a certain thing. And we saw that in the ceremony itself last week, which was quite beautiful. 
as he James explained, which was replicated his own ceremony, right, that this very simple gesture of him pouring some water in a cup, taking a sip, and then just passing it to me to take a sip. And there was transmission. Transmission was complete. Just a sip of water together. So that reminded me, which I shared last Sunday about another koan in a very similar spirit where a monk asked the national teacher Chu of Nanyo, what is the essential body of Varichana Buddha? And the national teacher said, pass me the water jug. And so the monk passed him the water jug and the national teacher said, put it back where it was. The monk asked again, what is the essential body of Varichana Buddha? And the national teacher said, the old Buddha is long gone. And so Varichana Buddha is the Buddha of the essential nature, which is beyond all conceptual thought, right? All, all thinking. You could interpret or simplify the monk's question as just asking, what is, what is the essence of Buddhism? And the national teacher says, pass me the water jug. This is the essence of Buddhism. Passing the water jug, straightening our cushion, driving to the zendo, playing with our grandkids. And when we are lost in thought, when we have ideas that get in the way, of course, the, the old Buddha is long gone, nowhere to be found. But it's not just about being lost in thought. It's that can you know really prevent us from seeing and appreciating this. I was reflecting on this and how in, for many years, as we encounter practice in the beginning, uh, we study the precepts, we become more attentive in our life. We take up the practice of mindfulness, being more careful in our interactions with people. We make a real effort to live in accord with the Buddha Dharma more caring, more careful. It's kind of like, it can feel like we're almost like athletic training, like football players or soccer players or basketball players on the court, you know, doing drills. We have our guidebook, we have our rule book, we have our player's manual, and we do these drills, right? Um, we practice but instead of on the court or on the field we're practicing at home we're practicing in the kitchen here we're practicing in the zendo we're using the precepts as a guidebook as our manual not to kill not to steal to be careful with our speech to watch how our mind wanders how to bring it back over and over again to this moment watching how much we aggrandize ourselves through thought through speech or the opposite, how we diminish ourselves. And of course, these guidebook, these guidebooks of practice of the precepts are so important. And yet, they also can become an impediment. Because other, you know, at some point, we can become rule bound. We can be bound by the practice itself. You know, how many people t 
take up the precepts, but then use the precepts as a way to beat themselves up when they don't live up to them. Right, and we hear, of course, read the accounts of the masters, accounts of, the, of these um, encouragement talks of Taisho and imploring how masters would implore their students to practice with all their effort. And, and so we try and try and we don't live up to what we think is needed, right? We feel inadequate. It, it really ties into what psychologists call the punitive superego, this very critical judgmental part of us that says, what you're doing doesn't measure up. You're, what you're doing is wrong. You aren't capable. So just give up. You know, Freud noticed this. I came across a passage from Freud that really spoke directly to this, especially with how we can take the precepts up as, and it becomes a, just another rule book to obey by. He says this, he says, the commandment, love thy neighbor as thyself, is the strongest defense against human aggressiveness in an excellent example of the expectations of the cultural superego. The commandment is impossible to fulfill. Such an enormous inflation of love can only lower its value, not get rid of the difficulty. Civilization pays no attention to this at all. It merely admonishes us to uh, us that the harder it is to obey the precept, the more meritorious it is to do so. So, you know, really this, what he says here, this, it says how, how um, this enormous inflation of love through this admonition to love thy neighbor as thyself can only lower its value. When we're rule bound, when we're stuck in what we should do in life, how we should be, how we should be more loving, more giving, more mindful, more aware. Of course, that only diminishes our ability to really do that. And so often these patterns of perfectionism, of unrealistic standards that we impose on ourselves, they come from our early caregivers. And rather than feel our feelings about how they treated us, right? Often that would be anger and how dangerous that would be to feel as a child. What happens is we instead turn that those feelings inward against ourselves. It's safer. You're not doing something right. And then, of course, that turns into identifying with that perfectionistic or punitive parent. In essence, we become what we despise. But this is to say that within perfectionism, there is a healthy ideal there. There is, there is a healthy quality there. Of course, it, it has a potential of giving us direction of purpose. But when those healthy ideals are misunderstood or misapplied, they, becomes, they become more ways of torturing ourselves. Right? We insist 
that we reach these ideals. And of course, we won't ever reach them. Never. And then in this way, if we're practicing like this, it will become exhausting. We will burn ourselves out. We will try and try and try to be more mindful. We'll try and try and try not to speak in a way that's harmful and we will fail. It's like a kid that tries to be on their best behavior, right? I'm gonna try. We all have known or been that person and it works, right? It works, but it works only until it doesn't. And then there's the opposite that comes forward, right? Because it's coming from the outside. That's the whole point that with practice feels or certain behaviors feel like they're being imposed upon us, then it's coming from the outside and that's not gonna work. It has to come from the inside out. When it's coming from the outside, we're not able to soften. We will just be hard on ourselves forever. It's true with even with the practice itself in zazen of present moment awareness or mu or breath, you know, people wear themselves out. I've got to, am I practicing right? Am I doing it enough? I mean, right? Now the wearing out process is exactly what needs to happen. But what needs to get worn out is actually that need to do something right. That is what needs to get worn out. Because otherwise it's just more me, me, me. And so we can see just in this little examination today how tricky practice can be. Another example is in the Affirming Faith in Mind, this poem of the third ancestor that we recite on Thursday nights and in mornings in Sashin. It says, the great way is not difficult for those who do not pick and choose. When preferences are cast aside, the way stands clear and undisguised. Right? And so we hear that, we hear these kind of teachings, and we say, I shouldn't have any preferences. We try not to have any preferences. How well does that work? Right? Do you see how easy it is to have the practice itself co-opted by this punitive superego, this ideal, I've got to do this. Dangerous territory. And then we miss the spirit, which of course in this case is to recognize that we're, when we're caught in preferences, that's when we're in suffering. But it's not to try not to have preferences. There's another way that we can not soften into this practice, and that is really the side of hearing things like what I just said earlier about how James Roshi just embodies this ordinary mind. We hear this throughout the teachings, just be ordinary, 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 ordinary mind is the way. 
But Shinbi Yamaroshi, a master's, 20th century master said something like, he said something like, if our ordinary minds are the way, if that's simply it, then every fisherman and every person would know it. But he says, you know, in order to let go of all concepts of ordinary is really what it means to realize ordinary mind. So we, we don't just adopt again, because that's another belief. Or, oh, I just need to be ordinary. That's not what it's about. At the end of our koan training, we encounter what are called the five ranks of dungsheng, which is really a description of the awakening process, the practice journey over a lifetime. And in the fifth rank, which is the last one, the poem says this, it says, no longer concerned with being or non-being, who dares join you? Everyone wants to leave the ordinary current, but in the final analysis, you come back and sit in the ashes. Everyone wants to leave this ordinary current. And how many of us come to practice wanting something other than our ordinary lives? Understandable, of course, something different. But really to experience what is truly special, we have to let go of those ideas, our hopes, our dreams. And that's a painful process. And next weekend we have in here, so I was hoping Lee would be here um, because she's involved in that. Next weekend here in Pittsburgh, we have the annual death fair. I hope some of you are able to go. I'll be speaking on an interfaith panel um, in the afternoon on Sunday about Buddhism and, and its rights around death. But really, you know, what part of what our practice is about is dying over and over again, you know, dying to these ideas of what life we think should be about. And then, of course, just with when somebody in our life dies, there can be very much a grieving process, there can be a rage, there can be desire to pull it all back together. But as it says in this poem, if we can move through that, if we can move through that process of dying fully, we can, in the final analysis, come back and sit in the ashes of this ordinary life. Right? right here, right in the ashes. Dirty, right here. This is the place that Deshan has come to live in from this koan. This place where everything has been let go of. And so in this case, this monk comes to his teacher and asks, this attendant Kaku says, where have all the Buddhas of the past gone? You know, these questions, as I often say, are often tests. Um, they're trained, in this case, perhaps Kaku is trying to probe Deshan for his understanding. Show me, you know, this awakened mind. Where, where have the Buddhas gone? Show me. And Deshan responds by saying, what did you say? Another translation of that is, 
What? What? There's another story, very brief, that goes like this. It's from the Buddhist time, I believe. In ancient times, as seven wise women were traveling through a forest strewn with corpses, one woman, one woman said, here are the corpses, where are the people? Another woman said, what, what? The woman looked around, women looked around at each other and all suddenly realized enlightenment and felt the king of God showering flowers in offering to them. What? What? <clears throat> Where have all the Buddhas gone? What is Deshaun communicating? Don't get lost in ideas about it. The monk, Kaku, responds as if Deshaun doesn't get it and says, I commanded an exceedingly fine horse to spring forth, but only a lame tortoise appeared. Clearly not approving of his answer. Again, just the same reminiscent of an earlier case that I referenced when Deshaun walks down to the kitchen with his bowls and doesn't realize the bell hadn't been rung. In that case, the head cook sort of thinks he's had one up on the master and goes to his brother monk and said, the old master, I think, you know, he doesn't really get it. He came down early for the meal and and his brother monk sort of takes advantage of this and says to him, well, the old boss, he doesn't understand the last word of Zen yet. Doesn't quite get it. And that gets the, the cook kind of his mind going. Hmm. The colon goes on from there, but what is this last word of Zen? What? What? Anyway, this attendant in this current case, you know, doesn't approve of Deshaun's answer. And in thinking about this today, I'm sure some of my students have had similar thoughts in coming to see me in Doksan, you know, how I've certainly had those thoughts about my teachers. They just don't quite know what the hell they're talking about, you know. <laughs> but even then, you know, when we don't get the response we want or think we need or hope for, isn't there a value in that? Right, when our expectations aren't lived up to, isn't there value in that? Isn't there value in disappointment over and over again? God damn it. Didn't get what I wanted again. Kind of death.
when we don't get that fine horse, but we get that lame tortoise. In this colon, after his attendant says that, it says Deshaun was silent. Another answer to where those Buddhas of the past have all gone. In the introduction to this case, it says he sometimes covers cotton with iron and sometimes, though, uses brocade to hide a large stone. To use hardness and determining softness is all well and good, but how is it when showing weakness when confronted with strength? When somebody says something we don't like, do we confront them? Can we wrap our large stone in softness, covering that very powerful response with something very soft? The point is that we can get stuck in our ideas about something and we can miss it. And this is why really what Deshaun is pointing to is that we need to be silent. We need that. Of course, Deshaun's attendant, Kaku, doesn't get it. it. He doesn't understand that silence. He doesn't understand that he's just been clobbered by this large stone of silence. In, in many places, Zen communities before a Dharma talk, they recite this uh, short verse that says something like, the Dharma incomparably profound and minutely subtle is hardly ever met with, even in hundreds of thousands of millions of eons. You know, the subtle response. And so this monk doesn't see that subtle response. Sometimes life can be harsh and teachers can be harsh, like the young Deshaun, like a large stone that rolls right over us. And sometimes that's really what we need, you know? Um, as my mom used to say, what is it going to take to get through your thick skull? <laughs> I don't know how many times I heard that as a kid. What is it going to take to get through your thick skull? <laughs> But other times we need the softer lesson. <clears throat> I've had, I've had, uh, believe it or not, a number of students over the years ask me to, to be harder on them. Be more direct, be harder on me. And I sometimes wonder where that comes from. Is that that punitive superego that wants to be told what to do? And so what's often necessary is just the opposite. And that gets under your skin, right? Because it doesn't meet your expectations. That's exactly what's needed. So the next day in this koan, Deshaun comes from his bath and Kaku offers him tea. And Deshaun gives him a gentle pat on the shoulder. Kaku says, the old boss has finally noticed, right? For the first time. And at that, Deshaun was silent. This gentle pat is and teaching. 
course, that can stir up all kinds of things as well. It feels good, right, when we get a gentle pat or a compliment from someone we want that from. It can feel good. You finally notice me. Deshaun doesn't challenge Kaku's arrogance. He doesn't call him out. He knows that his student really isn't ready to hear that, knowing that it wouldn't do much good. And so he leaves him in silence. It, it, this, all this reminds me of a story that some of you have heard before about a priest in Japan who lived a few hundred years ago. And one day in the village, a, there was a, um, this woman came knocking at the door and had an infant in her hands and, and said to the priest, as the priest opened the door, here, and handed him the infant. This is your baby. You got my daughter pregnant. The daughter had blamed the priest for getting his daughter pregnant. And so the priest said, is that so? And took the baby in and simply cared for it. And then as time passed, some time passed, the daughter felt very guilty for her condemning this priest falsely. And so the monk, as was continuing to care for the child, got another knock on the door from the parents and this time with their head kind of lowered in shame and said, oh, we're so sorry for the false accusation and we'll take the child back now. And so he handed the child back and said, is that so? No pretense, just going with it, naturally flowing. Just like Deshaun, a pat on the back, silence. So, you know, this, this is just to say, to come back to Dogen, who said the purpose of practice, if we can speak of a purpose, is a tender heart. That is where it's at. Before we end, I just want to recall a case of a man who I saw um, some videotapes of in the type of therapeutic work I, world I am in. We often videotape our sessions with clients and show them to supervisors, but this one was somebody who had been videotaped and um, was used as a teaching tape. I say tape, but it wasn't a tape, of course, it was a recording. And this was a case of a man who was came to therapy because of his anger problem. He had been ordered to therapy um, because he had um, acted out on anger. He was the top surgeon at a hospital um, and his reputation was one that he had terrified pretty much everybody who worked for him. Um, all the nurses, all the attendants, all the other doctors were pretty much scared of this guy. And as you meet him early in his therapy sessions, the first session, etc., you see this incredibly angry, defiant guy. But as the therapy continues and we skip to session 20 and session 30, and by the time the, the last session comes around, his He's being discharged from treatment. The man is in tears, grateful 
saying things like, I don't know if I can leave you to the therapist. Totally softened, tender. This hard man who had earlier gotten in a fight at a gas station was now cried at the thought of finishing therapy, professing his love for his family and how much time had been missed in his life. So sometimes to get to that tender heart, we need a whack. Or sometimes we just need some silence. That's why we're here. I, I want to end. I read somebody in Doksan part of this poem. I, I want to read it. Um, I heard it in a commentary on this koan, so I want to credit Bodin Kolhid Roshi for his comment, his including this in his Taisho many years ago. It's called by Edward or Edgar Edgar Lee Masters. He was a poet that lived, I think, uh, in the late 19th century, early 20th century. He said, I have known the silence of the stars and of the sea and the silence of the city when it pauses and the silence of a man and a maid and the silence for which music alone finds the word and the silence of the woods before the winds of the springs begin and the silence of the sick when their eyes roam around the room and I ask for the depths of what uses language. A beast of the field moans a few times when death takes its young. We are voiceless in the presence of realities we cannot speak. A curious boy asks an old soldier sitting in front of a grocery store, how did you lose your leg? And the old soldier is struck with silence or his mind flies away because he can't concentrate on Gettysburg. There is the silence of a great hatred, the silence of a great love, and the silence of a deep peace of mind, and the silence of an embittered friendship. There is the silence of a spiritual crisis through which your soul, exquisitely tortured, comes with visions not to be uttered into a realm of higher life. There is the silence of those unjustly punished, and the silence of dying whose hand suddenly grips yours. There is the silence between father and son when the father cannot explain his life. Even though he be misunderstand for it, misunderstood for it. And there is the silence of age, too full of wisdom for the tongue to utter it in words intelligible to those who have not lived the great range of life.